totally normal question. Mm-hmm. When you see an ear of corn, what do you think about? Oh, like mostly about summer barbecues and corn on the cob. Really? Because I just think about DNA regulation. You're a weirdo. Hello and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm Mae Prince and I'm here with Katie McKissick, also known as Beatrice the Biologist. Hey guys. Hello everyone. Who uh, who are we talking about today? You don't know? Why don't you know? <laughs> well, because there was a last minute change. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Anyway, so we're going to be talking about Barbara McClintock because I was going to research someone else, but as I won't even say who it is because I don't want to... Just Get Google. Whole big thing. Start Googling, you guys. Oh my gosh. I just started researching <laughs> a different person. Okay, here. I'll, I'll, I'll send you guys on like a, yeah, Google, like scavenger hunt. She was uh, a self-taught scientist or philosopher, I guess you could say, who translated On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin into French. Pretty cool. And, uh, and I heard that they had some disagreements and I thought that sounded pretty funny. So I started researching her and I just was like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't, I don't want to invite this person to brunch. So I'm, I, 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 I called May and I was like, dude, you guys, I can't do this. I get this like late night phone. Well, not too late, yeah. but late like, phone call. No, it's like, just, just no. Katie not being able to deal. She was kind of into like <laughs> eugenics, you guys. And I was, ugh, I just, I can't, I can't do that right now. So we, we called it off for mental health, pur- yeah, mental yeah. health purposes. So I'm going with someone way cooler anyway, who I've been wanting to do for a while. So Barbara McClintock. Awesome. You Barb. Heard of Barb? I, she sounds familiar. And uh, I don't really know anything about her, okay. so I'm looking forward to it. Okay, cool. But yeah. but yes, before then, of course, as always, we have a science starter. Mm-hmm. What do you got? For a science starter today, we have DNA long-range electron transfer. Oh! <laughs> do, do you know? <laughs> do you know what that is? Um, sort of. Sort of. But okay. I'm so excited to hear how you're going to explain this. I was I was jazzed to learn about this yeah. because I had never heard of it before. It never even occurred to me, but it totally makes sense. And um, so, this research has been going on for the past like 20, 25 years. And basically, what started it was they realized these researchers um, at Caltech actually just nearby, they realized that electricity can be conducted down a strand of DNA. And what electricity is, is basically just electrons, you know, flowing back and forth. And so they found that if an electron, an electron can travel down a strand of DNA, and at first they were like, well, that's super cool. What's it for? <laughs> and they didn't know. And over years of research, they, you know, they found this basic function and they were like, well, this is cool. We've never known this before, but what does it do? And they have found that the things that transfer these electrons down a strand of DNA are the proteins that repair DNA. So, you know, your DNA is made of all these paired bases. And if for some reason there's a mutation or a mistake or um, something like that, like a mutation that will cause disease or cancer or whatever, for example, your proteins go in and repair that mutation. Well, that's how it's supposed to work. So they, they eventually found out that these proteins have these iron sulfur clusters. And the thing about those clusters is that there's really no reason for them to be in these proteins. And like for the longest time, scientists were like, why do the proteins even have this? It doesn't make any sense. They're not for anything. Well, the thing that they're for, they think now, is that each has an electron that they easily lose. 
And so when they attach themselves to a strand of DNA, one of them sends that electron down the strand of DNA, and the electron travels just fine as long as every, all of the bases along the strand are perfectly aligned and perfect. But if there's a mistake in the strand, the electron stops. So it's like a nice wire. Yeah, it's like as long as yeah, as long as you know the, everything is working well and there's no little little snip halfway exactly. down or something. So the proteins are basically telephoning each other, <laughs> and so one of them drops an electron on the strand and ready, the electron's like, down the strand, and then if the other protein doesn't get it, it's like, hey, what, what, what? happened? <laughs> and so then that protein, if it doesn't get the electron, starts to travel up the strand and eventually happens on the mistake that caused the break in the circuit. Mm, and clever. so the reason why these researchers thought that this is how DNA kind of communicated where mistakes were along the strand is that they realized that DNA is so long and so complicated that how would the body ever figure out if there was a mistake and repair a mistake? Like the chances of finding a mistake on a DNA are not good. So this this researcher was like well there's probably a shortcut and this is the shortcut they telephone each other and they easily find the mistake with the electron and then they just hone in on it yeah they send a little test signals exactly testing testing exactly. one two three so testing actg Get they're it? finding Get out it? that you know they do this for repairs they do this for replicating dna and uh this is something that they didn't really know before and what they're finding as well is that because of this they know that they can artificially make like, you know, synthetic proteins that do this mm. and look for mistakes. That's cool. So this is kind of a way of scanning DNA that we'd never had before and finding mutations, which That's is really cool. super cool, I thought. Yeah, yeah. the, the charge of DNA, because DNA overall has a slight negative charge, and ah. that's how gel electrophoresis works. You know, you see those pictures of... Uh, putting DNA into little wells at one side and then they're pulled across and you get those the kind of DNA fingerprint with all these different bands. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's like CSI. It's like, oh, does their DNA match? You know, do the <laughs> bands match up? Are these two samples of DNA the same? That's because huh. you put all the DNA in one side and then you run a current through it. And so the other, the far side is positive and the DNA gets pulled towards it. Interesting. It has a negative charge. Yeah. And those different bands that you get, I mean, basically what they do is they take all your DNA, they add, you know, something to cut up the DNA at certain, you know, places. Like wherever you see the sequence CCTGGAA, mm -hmm. cut. And so they cut it all just, just you know, arbitrary. Just, like, yeah. just cut at this arbitrary point. But um, whatever those chunks are, if you have a, the chunks as they move through the gel, the slower ones can get through easier because the gel, you know, it just slows you down. So uh -huh. it's like... If you're smaller, you can kind of worm your way through a little easier. Huh. And then if you're bigger, you kind of hang back. So that's what those bands are, is chunks of certain sizes and where they wound up in the gel based on how far they could move through. So that's, so anyway, yeah, it's just, this it's is crazy. crazy. I, I mean, DNA and it's charged. And it's so funny we're talking about this because Barbara McClintock worked with DNA. Oh yeah. So good awesome. job. <laughs> it worked out really you're well. welcome. We did this totally on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> we we coordinated late <laughs> last night <laughs> figure out what was going on yeah so tell me all about about barb yeah so so she was someone i did you know learn about in school uh in you know like high school biology mm -hmm. so she you may have heard her name because she is a kind of a textbook mainstay when you're talking about dna um and 
but I, yeah, I didn't know a whole lot about her other than that. So it was kind of cool diving into her, her past. Uh, she was born in 1902. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into the thirties again, <laughs> but don't worry. Don't worry. You guys, world war two has a, a, just a footnote in this story. Thank God. <laughs> world war two. I'm so sick of you. We skip, we skip right over eugenics, yeah. the whole deal. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyway, so when she was born, mm-hmm. her name was Eleanor McClintock. Okay. I know. What? <laughs> I just read that. I was like, I'm sorry. What? Was Barbara in her name anywhere? No. Oh, this is okay. So, this is so weird. I've never heard of anybody doing this, but basically when she was um, a couple years old, when she was, you know, a, a little kid, they were like, you know, Eleanor just doesn't fit her. Hmm. Eleanor is just not the right name. So we're going to name her Barbara instead. Interesting. What? I, I mean, I don't think you can do that these days. Maybe, like, were there no social security cards back then? I mean, you get those pretty early on. Like, did they change her? I don't understand the That's a good question. logistics of this. And this is me just being a total dork, because, like, <laughs> rather than just kind of thinking about the, the philosophical ramifications of changing a three- or four-year-old's name, I'm like, but how did they do it? Did they go to the social security office and get a new card for her? That's weird. Why is that what I think about? I don't know. But anyway, they just didn't think that name fit her, so they changed it. Good job, guys. Interesting. weirdos. (laughs) By the way, if there's anyone out there who has done this, who has changed their kid's name, like, after the age of, I'm going to say, two, please let us know. I want to know. We want to know why, Why and we want to know the logistics of it. I mean, because, yeah, like you said, maybe it was her middle name, because I do know people people who have decided at some point to just go by a, a different name. My, my dad actually did that. He huh. um, had, you know, gone by his first name until he wa- went to, to law school or something. And then he just was like, you know what? I've never liked my first name, hmm. which is, which sucks. Not liking your first, your own first name. Right. So he just went by his middle name. And it was always really confusing growing up because all his oldest friends called him one thing and all yeah. of his like, you know, <laughs> more recent friends called him something else. And I was like, I don't understand what's happening, but okay. Anyway, so <laughs> so she's in Connecticut, uh-huh. grows up there, uh, and to New York. This is another uh, sign of the times. When she was two, she, her parents sent her to live with um, an aunt and uncle in Brooklyn because they were like, we need, he's starting his, her dad was starting up his medical practice and they mm-hmm. wanted to cut some expenses. So like, send her away. <laughs> To live with some relatives. <laughs> so that <laughs> did they have other kids? They yeah, like, they did. They, she had siblings. They're like, let's out. just get rid of this one, and that'll make everything cheaper, just for a little bit. Interesting. <laughs> okay, whatever. Uh, so yeah. So, but eventually they were reunited, and went, as she went into school. Huh. Uh, yeah. So. She was a really independent kid. She really liked being alone, um, or just was cool with it. Just was always kind of on her own sort of, you know, wavelength, I guess you could say. Hmm. Uh, in high school, decided that she was super into science and wanted to go to Cornell. And her mom almost stopped her from going. Why? Just because it would make her unmarriageable. Mm, that's true. That age Those old problem. smart ladies are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you put in science, you don't get out as many babies. <laughs> it's that's a scientific fact yeah the more education you have generally the fewer children you have this is true but uh and i guess in this case it's true because she had zero children spoiler alert there you go (laughs) yeah but she so she did go to cornell because even though her mom almost prevented her from going her Mm -hmm. dad was like no 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 she is going that's that's that all right uh she 
uh, went into the College of Agriculture, so she majored in bo- uh, botany, hmm. and she also was really into jazz, which is kind of interesting. Cool. Plants and jazz. She's a Renaissance lady, uh, and she totally loved her genetics course. Hmm. And uh, the professor um, thought she was, you know, pretty awesome, and invited her to uh, to uh, sign up for his graduate level course. Okay, and that she totally credits with her basically like her entire life success because huh. it really set her on this path because she was just so excited about it that this professor took an interest in her and was, you know, so she was an undergraduate and he's like, you seem smart. Yeah. You should take my graduate course. You're, you're the bomb. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, so she, the quote from her is obviously this telephone call where he offered this to her, uh, cast the die for my future. I remained with genetics thereafter. I love that people used to talk like that. (laughs) I don't use the word thereafter very often. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like when you're writing your autobiography or whatever, you, you use more flowery language. I wouldn't. You'd I'd be, be like, like, this is pretty cool. Yeah. This guy, this guy was nice to me, and so I went into genetics. <laughs> the end. Thanks, everybody. The Bye. End. The end. <laughs> it's a very short autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> My autobiography is a paragraph. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. It's easy to read. Like, more people can read it. It's, like, very accessible, you know? The end. You sell it for two cents. It's good to go. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of one time I saw a kid's movie in a theater, and, like, halfway through the movie, there was a really dramatic moment, and it <laughs> faded to black, and this little kid goes, the end. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen multiple movies where I'm like, please let this be the end. I could have used that girl. <laughs> it was so cute. <laughs> So anyway, uh, so the research that she started doing after she got her, you know, master's and her PhD in in botany was uh, called cytogenetics. Mm, That sounds familiar. So cyto is in cytoplasm, genetics as in genes and DNA and things. What's a cytoplasm? Cytoplasm is when you look at a cell, Uh there's all the organelles and all the stuff. Cytoplasm is the bath that they are all in. Oh, the that the kind of matrix of the goop, yeah, of water and and salts and proteins and everything that's happening. We used to think it really was just kind of this amorphous bath, but no, there's tons of structure and proteins and hmm. kind of highways in between to move to shuttle things around and stuff. But yeah, it's the the matrix that a cell is made of. That goop all of, infrastructure. Yes, gotcha. Yes. Um, so if you're doing if you're doing genetics research and looking at cytoplasm, you're counting chromosomes. So mm-hmm. that's what she was doing. She developed a, a really good stain to stain those chromosomes, and then she could map map them. So, hmm. I mean, have you seen those pictures of like of our chromosomes where they're kind of all lined up, all pretty? Yeah. And it's like, oh, here, you know, all the twenty three pairs. Yeah. And, you know, and then one of them's the X and Y, and or, or XX if you're a lady like myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah. So that's kind of what she was doing. Was huh. you look at a cell, you um, you spill, you know, the, you open up the nucleus, and you can, you can they can all line up. You can see them under under a microscope because yeah. they're so tightly packed, you know, because you can't see DNA in a mm-hmm. regular microscope, but you can see these protein. I'm sorry, these chromosomes because they're nice and chunky. Uh, so anyway, so she was. Uh, counting chromosomes and looking at how they behaved during mitosis and meiosis. Mm-hmm. And to back up there for a second, so mitosis is when a cell is splitting in two. So mm-hmm. it, it doubles, it uh, multiplies its DNA, everything lines up all perfectly so that each resulting cell as it pinches in the middle and mm-hmm. separates gets you know, a complete set. I remember looking at all the different stages in like seventh grade biology. Right, right. Yeah. Prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase, all that stuff. Yeah. So that's mitosis. Okay. Meiosis 
is the one where it also is splitting in half, but you wind up with four daughter cells that have half the number of chromos- of yeah of DNA or half the number of chromosomes as one of your normal cells, right? Because those are your reproductive cells. Sexy sex, right? That so that's how you get sperm and eggs. Yep. So anyway, so meiosis and they. My mitosis and meiosis have a lot of the same steps, but meiosis kind of the dance is just slightly different so that uh, the way that they line up in the middle so that you wind up with a cell that has one set of one full set of chromosomes mm-hmm. rather than, the, than the, you know, a double set. Gotcha. Um, anyway, so she was looking at all that stuff. And so she basically mapped out the chromosomes of corn. And was like, oh, when when you know when the corn has this part on their chromosome, mm-hmm. they just they exhibit this trait and, and all that gotcha. sort of stuff. And she was also looking at this really cool thing called crossing over, mm-hmm. which is not when you die and your <laughs> and your soul. <laughs> what? It's when the, that would the, have been a monumental it's when discovery the in genetics. Is beckoning, <laughs> and you go towards the light. <laughs> no, it's this thing where um, when all the chromosomes line up in the middle of the cell. Yeah. Uh, and you have the chromosomes of they they like get next to each other and sometimes they actually the little legs kind of get intertwined and switch uh-huh. parts with each other for we st- do we still not know why they're oh, just no. like woohoo here you go it's just another way to kind of you know get some interest in there it's like you know <laughs> this whole thing about like just let's we do this dance all the time let's just you know make Mix it, it up um, yeah so yeah it just kind of whoosh and so sometimes yeah, like you'll have a trait that was on this chromosome get flipped over to this other one. It's like footloose, got to mix it up. Yep. I mean, that's the whole reason why evolution works. Chromosomes are playing footsie. Exactly. Yeah. They're just, yeah, screwing things up. Oh, those those silly, silly chromosomes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So anyway, so she noticed that. And, um, and then she was, uh, she also noticed when she was working with corn, uh, she would bombard them with x-rays to basically induce mutations because x-rays scramble everything up and they're just these really high energy waves that just go in there and like, that's why they're bad for you. Yeah. By the way, they're bad. They're bad because they mess with your DNA. Which is why when you go to the dentist and get x-rays or wherever you're getting x-rays, maybe you hurt yourself. I'm really sorry about that. Did you, did you break an ankle or something? <laughs> when you go and get an x-ray, they cover you with this lead bib because uh-huh. it's okay to occasionally get an x-ray of your ankle right. or your teeth, um, but you don't want to get x-rays near those cells that are doing meiosis because yeah. you know if you if you if some you know if a cell in your jawbone you know gets a little bit of x-rays and the, and the cell gets kind of messed up then that cell will just die and it'll be like okay fine it's just it's just a little damage i mean it's, it's yeah. like it's like getting a cut it's like we'll repair this we'll get rid of that cell it's cool but if you damage the cells that produce your eggs right then oh no and that's why they always ask you if you're pregnant yeah i mean they ask women Right. If they're pregnant. Guys, you probably well, don't yeah, get they this don't question. Even, they wouldn't want to risk even getting one errant x-ray anywhere yeah. near a developing fetus because that's well, so terrible. This was, <laughs> I'll just relate a very uh, confusing part of my childhood or, or I guess teenagehood mm-hmm. real quick. But yeah, so in, in eighth grade in gym class, I broke my finger playing basketball. I was so mad. Afterwards, I scored like four three-pointers it was awesome but then my finger was just like four times normal size and so um did did you stub it yeah oh yeah yeah, the the ball worse because none of the other girls were participating and they like one of them just like chucked it at me out of nowhere without looking at me and it jammed my finger so that's why i was mad but apparently rage gives me strength and that's the best i've ever been at basketball after that it was all downhill so you are the hulk yeah i'm the basketball hulk and so then after that of course you know they had to like 
call someone to come pick me up and take me to the hospital and get x-rays. And I like go into the room with the nurse and I'm sitting down to get my x-ray. And she's like, all right, are you pregnant? And I was like, lady, I'm just here for the finger. Like, what? <laughs> what no, you? no, my finger is not I was pregnant. Like, God. I was like, no, no, I broke my finger playing basketball. The basketball came and jammed. She's like, no, honey, are you pregnant? And I'm like, seriously, How I'm is here this relevant, for this lady? broken finger. Like, I had no idea what she was Why talking she was about. Asking, yeah. And it was all because she wanted to know, like, right. I guess how many lead aprons to put on me. Right. But it was like, so confusing like that was the first time i'd gotten x-rays done when i was basically a teenager like after puberty right and so that was the first time you know i'd heard this and she didn't explain it to me right. she never explained it. so like uh. the, for like years afterwards i was like what the hell just so what happened you, so what do you do if you break your finger while you are pregnant do they not x-ray and go well, let's just take the best guess i don't know happens. i think they just like pile lead on you i have no idea hmm. like they put you in one room you know how they like when they, they, they hit they the chop switch your hand off take it into the other room and x-ray then they, they attach it again well, yeah well when the nurses take or the the radiologist or whoever is taking the x-ray like when they hit the switch they like step out of the room and like oh yeah hook their arm around and then hit the switch that's because they're getting radiated like yeah every single day but yeah that was the that's the confusing part like no one ever explained that to me but yeah fun fact too when i was in the hospital when i was about 14 uh-huh. for an uh, yeah an injury i fell while i was snowboarding and i had some some internal bleeding like no big it's fine. It's fine. But, but yeah i was in there with all this abdominal pain and i was just like <laughs> what's happening and yeah these, these doctors were like so <clears throat> are, you, are you are you pregnant and i was like uh no yeah cause same thing i'm like i'm 14 dog. like no <laughs> and then and then they they asked me like 10 times they like and then they made my mom go in they're like no seriously yeah I'm like no you guys just make me not die that's all i'm here for please <laughs> i would just not like to die could you please stop asking please, about my uterus <laughs> please stop um anyway but uh, but why she was using x-rays to bombard corn with them is not because she was some kind of evil genius or something <laughs> but um but no so while she was doing that she saw that cells basically had these end oh, sorry the chromosomes had mm-hmm. have something on either end that would get shortened as she was bombarding them basically she figured out that there are these things called telomeres at the ends of chromosomes that kind of provide a buffer for damage interesting and it was like oh that's so cool so these are i mean just to kind of back up for a second these are some of the the most amazing findings about genetics yeah. of the last century. I mean, this is like compare. This is kind of like Gregor Mendel level yeah. stuff. Like, whoa. <laughs> so wait, this was so she went to college probably like close to 1920, and then she stayed on to do her PhD and everything. So this was like the this 20s the and 20s, the 30s. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So this is really amazing stuff. Uh, she got a, and the only thing about World War II, since we're getting into the 30s now, she did get this fellowship to go study in Germany where people were doing similar work with chromosomes, but Ruh-roh. with Drosophila flies. That's another like really right. like workhorse kind of um, uh, model organism people do a lot of genetic stuff with, these little fruit flies. So anyway, so she got this fellowship to go to Germany in 1933. Yikes. <laughs> but she didn't, she did go, but mm-hmm. one of the people she was going to work with had already fleed. <laughs> So she was, she was, she wasn't, she didn't, it was only going to be for like six months anyway, but she didn't even, didn't even stay for six months because it was getting so bad over there. Yeah. When you show up to do the the work study and the lab is on fire and people are running for their lives, it's not a good sign. Not so much. Um, so anyway, then she got a professorship at the University of Missouri Mm -hmm. and and continued this work. Uh, but it just, it wasn't really a good fit. It was kind of 
kind of bad vibes. Like there'd be faculty meetings and they wouldn't invite her. So just sort of, I don't think anyone was like really in her face, but they really did kind of exclude her in a lot of ways. And it just, just was, wasn't good. So she left. And so where she wound up and did the, uh, the majority of her work from here on out, or mm-hmm. all of her work, sorry, Carnegie Institution of Washington's Department of Genetics, Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. That's, okay. So that, I know, it's like, that's a, that's catchy a really name. long name. <laughs> um, that's where she went and then did the coolest thing that she, that she did that she is known for. Okay. Was work with jumping jeans. <laughs> it sounds exciting. Jumping jeans. I just love saying it. <laughs> it sounds more exciting than corn chromosome research (laughs) jumping genes so and what those are or why she started looking into it was um have you seen those like decorative corns because i've never actually eaten one of these but the corns were all the different random kernels or different colors are they called like jewel corn or something i don't know like she she did research about the evolution of corn or maize because i don't Mm -hmm. know if you've ever seen pictures but the before humans started cultivating it yeah. the corn was like it was just two pitiful. inches long and, yeah. had, and was just i mean it really was like yeah these are seeds for us not for you guys so they're really small there really wasn't anything to eat but then people started uh yeah cultivating it and selectively breeding it and so now we have these big awesome corn kernels that before are so we delicious fully now. understood or partially understood genetics i know how did anybody do this this i mean this is the basis of agriculture those entrepreneurial people thousands of years ago i they made civilization possible thank you so much um, but anyway, so she was looking at those corns where you yeah, have random kernels or different colors, mm-hmm. and it was just so perplexing because they all have the same DNA. Why in God's name would one have a purple corn kernel and the other one have a yellow corn I just, kernel? I just pictured her what? like walking through the grocery store and like, you know, the produce section is the first section that you go into and she just like gets stopped and she's like... What? Look at this hell? corn, you guys. I know she's talking to the just <laughs> she the, the person never just makes stalking it out of it. produce. She's, she's like, Did people wonder why there's all these different colors? And I, yeah, there's this person stalking apples, looking at her like, what? Are you, what? She gets home and her roommates are like, did you get milk? She's like, no, I was stuck with the corn. What? But yeah, so she started looking at the cells and you know different corn kernels and trying to figure out what was different. Mm-hmm. And she basically, I don't want to get you know too far into the weeds, but she basically found out that there were controlling elements, as she named them where if these two things are present then you know this this kind of area of the chromosome seems to activate mm. and it turned out and it was basically where the genes were for pigment but if they're not there then that gene gets doesn't get used and it's kind of covered up and basically she discovered the regulatory kind of proteins that you get at, or and and genes that are in dna because it's just because you have a gene doesn't mean you're going to use it necessarily right. so she found out that when certain things are present, it gets used. And when other things are present, it doesn't get used. Hmm. And, and they can move around around the, around the chromosomes. And that's how, yeah, if they're not there, it'll get expressed. If they are there, it won't get expressed. And so as they move hmm. around at random, that's why you get these random kernel. One kernel produces it, another kernel doesn't. Because it's just kind of the a roll of the dice. Interesting. If these, if these parts of the chromosome move around and create a situation where they are, that gene gets expressed. So does that happen in every organism then? There's all this, like, you have a bunch of genes. I mean, I know we have a bunch of supposedly junk in our DNA. Um, 
but they're now finding out that that's not actually junk. They're like, oh, this stuff. Yeah, a lot of it is regulation kind of stuff that that controls whether or not something's actually getting used. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, not all of our DNA codes for something. And not all of our DNA codes for protein. Some of it codes for R- for RNA and doesn't get changed into proteins. It's so complicated. So <laughs> who knew I that DNA know. would be complicated? I know. I thought it'd be so simple. Again, <laughs> DNA millions of years of evolution. Yeah, I mean, you know. it's it's crazy that you know we so we figured out what it looked like in the fifties, mm-hmm. and at the exact same time, or you know, a year before that was when we figured out that it actually held you know genetic information and you know the instructions for building living things. So it's been so recent. I mean, we talked about Rosalind Franklin and yeah. all the work she did, um, and how Watson and Crick you know published the paper about what it looks like. It's so recent, and we're still figuring all that stuff out. Yeah, it's but in the meantime, so we're cool. also now splicing things together right. and, and editing DNA, which right. is so crazy. We like haven't even figured it all out, but we're like, oh, we're just gonna jump right to yeah to baking the cake. We don't know all the ingredients. <laughs> I know it's it's so awesome. But um, anyway, so gene regulation was was essentially what she, you know, discovered and, and detailed. And it explains why, yeah, like we, all of the cells in our body have the same set of DNA, but obviously mm. our cells wind up doing wildly different things. Right. Um, and, uh, and the pigmentation stuff that she discovered, yeah, it's why, for instance, you know, my dog is mostly black, but has some white spots on mm-hmm. her. It's, you know, stuff like that is why you get very random variations like that. Um, but when she published this, the scientific community kind of went, what? <laughs> I don't know. All of the best science discoveries get the what? Are you sure? <laughs> so so uh, she was well ahead of her time, basically. Mm. She was the first person to point all this stuff out. And so few other scientists, even, you know, in gen- genetics specifically, understood it, mm. understood what she was doing. And they were, they were so overwhelmed with this notion that DNA was this passive set of instructions that could not, you know, control itself. I mean, you know, right. it's just like, yeah, it's just a book. Like, what are you talking about? The book's not going to tell you which page to read. The book is just a book. You decide, you know, whatever. Hmm. So they were so uh, kind of mixed up in that, that this just did just broke their brains. And so people just kind of ignored it or were really dismissive of it. Huh. Uh, so she... And this is this makes me so sad. After she published, you know, a couple papers about all this work, and mm-hmm. and the reception was so, ugh, she just kind of went, okay, I'm not gonna do this anymore because this is just kind of. I mean, she's like, I know I'm right, I absolutely do, and mm-hmm. so I, you know, fe- don't feel bad about anything. But I'm just gonna do something else because this is this is terrible. <laughs> Having people, you know, look down on your work like this. Yeah. So she, um, after this, well, this was in the 50s. After this, she moved on and did a bunch of research about the evolution, like I said, of corn and how it has changed over thousands of years which is equally awesome yeah um but anyway so she was like i can't deal with this 20 to 30 years later was when people started understanding the mechanisms that she had referred to in the 50s so like 60s 70s they were like oh my god i get it now well that actually (laughs) that's exactly what happened to gregor mendel right like he did he did all these notes about the genetics of peas and then his work just basically sat there unrecognized and not understood for, for oh, yeah. decades. He was, he was long dead. And then finally that guy in the early 1900s picked it up and he's like, Oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense. I just, I feel so bad for people that were that far ahead of their time. Yeah. It reminds me, I was thinking about Tesla and his remote controlled little boat <laughs> yeah. and how people were like, nah, that's dumb. <laughs> it's 
like, or Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage. They're like, we're going to build a computer. And people are like, we don't even understand what you're talking about. People are like, can you fix my horse and buggy? <laughs> my horse First? is sick. Do you have medicine for my yeah, horse? Yeah, what? Yeah, um, those people. Yeah, they were out of out of time. Yeah. If we could, if we had a time machine, we could go back and be like, it's going to be okay. I know. Or no, just take them with us. Don't leave <laughs> yeah. them back there to suffer. Just hand them a laptop and be like, all right, I've just set you ahead 150 years. Yeah, you just go, you go back in time and you, and you introduce yourself and they're like, my God, your clothes are weird. Who are you? And you show them your iPhone and go, look at this. And they go, ooh. They go, witch, and witch. They start, and they burn in the they town square. And they start reaching for it. And then you pull them into the time machine. And then, you, and then after they've gotten over their trauma and in this, in this day and age, then they can start doing their work. It'll be great. Um, but yeah, I, I have a particular soft spot for people that were so far ahead of their time. Yeah. And, um, it like breaks my heart, but I'm also just so amazed by them. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so amazing. Um, but anyway, so, you know, 60s, 70s, people started, you know, understanding more about gene regulation. Um, there was a, basically, uh, what kind of turned the tides was someone looking at a gene that's in bacteria. I think it was E. coli that they were working with mm-hmm. and they actually could work out how um, the gene was turned on and off. It's called the, the LAC operon, which is another like pretty like a mainstay of biology textbooks. Mm-hmm. It's like when, cause it needs to make lactase to break down uh, lactose. And it's like, if there's a lot of lactose around, it turn on, turns on the gene. And if there's not a lot of lactose around, the gene uh. turns on. it's basically like um, a thermostat. It's like it kind of can sense when that gene needs to be turned on based huh. on kind of what's going on in the cell. So once they understood that, they were like, oh, that's what Barbara was talking about. <laughs> oh. oh, sorry, Barb. Right. Did they feel bad about it, though? Yes. Did they feel bad enough about it? I hope so. You know, right. people don't often feel bad enough. I, I agree. <laughs> they might feel bad, but not bad enough. You should feel worse <laughs> about yourselves, you guys. I agree. All you people in the 50s that didn't understand this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's why, I don't know. It's interesting to me the, how this, how the scientific community uh, accepts new information, you know, because it's like, if you want to make a name in science, you either discover something new mm-hmm. or you disprove something everybody thinks. Right. So that's what, I mean, so that's what everyone, I guess, is technically setting out to do. Most of it is very incremental steps. Like, oh, we learned this like tiny detail about this tiny thing. And as a whole unit, there's a huge body of work that explains something. And I just discovered this one little puzzle piece and it fits in there. That's cool. Um, But some people take the puzzle and they throw it on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then if they don't understand what you're talking about in the first place, where your discovery is, then they can't actually try to disprove it. So then it leads to this just stagnation where nothing happens. You're like, I discovered this thing, but then the science doesn't advance because no one's trying to prove you wrong. Yeah. But yeah, but when it, when you discover something new, sometimes it takes a little bit of time to sink in, but eventually it all works itself out. That's why the system as a whole, for all of its imperfections, somehow works out. That's why and it's that's important thing. for science to keep playing around mm-hmm. because you never know what new things you're going to discover when you're just screwing around mm-hmm. or making mistakes in the lab. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what didn't Jonas Salk make like tons of mistakes in the lab? And he's like, oh, perfect. It's all, about, it's all about the mistakes. <laughs> but yeah. Mistakes are sometimes it's the important. best things. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so when everybody realized that, you know, she had done some of this work 20 years before when they were making all these discoveries and going, oh, that's what she was doing. Uh, she did get the 1983 Nobel oh. for physiology or medicine. Gotcha. Uh, didn't share it with anybody. It was 
Barbara all McClintock. Her. The Barbara McClintock show. <laughs> Good job, Barb. No one understands it. Yeah. Three guys watch it and understand it. That's it. <laughs> but so, so that's good. And again, Nobels are kind of, yeah. I'm so, so about them. Like I've said on previous episodes, I feel like we put so much stock in them and it's like, does it, I mean, it's not like there's anything intrinsic about whether or not you really deserved it. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a small group of people that decide like, mm-hmm. what makes them so great and there's arbitrary rules like they can only split it between so many people and yeah. so if there's a whole team involved totally. too bad yeah like, sometimes they have to a discovery choose. was made was could be credited to a hundred people because yeah. they all did work you know equally sometimes it's teamwork yeah but yeah but it has there has to be some kind of main star that us accepts it or whatever so yeah i don't know i just kind of find them icky yeah and also the whole like not awarding after death is sticky like just this week one of the uh main like researchers and founders of ligo which discovered gravitational waves last year he died oh i didn't hear that and if you die before you are actually chosen by the committee like you only get the award if you die in that magical time zone between the time that they make the decision and give you the award right and so because it's there there's speculation that they're going to win the nobel because they confirmed because, Einstein's theory yeah. of relativity and gravitational waves a hundred years after he made it. Yeah. Um, after 30 years of a research project and building this observatory. So there's speculation that they're going to get a Nobel. And now this guy won't get one, even though he was involved for decades, like trying to do it. That's, so that's dumb. Yeah. It's dumb and sad because he yeah. got to live to see the thing actually happen. But it's also important to get recognition because people remember Nobel Prize winners. Yeah. I don't know. And it's just it's just weird because sometimes when something's that big, that discovery, when it's kind of like a, well, duh, he's going to get a Nobel. It's just like, yeah. this is the thing about Nobels. It's like if you it made, it's made such an amazing discovery, do, do we need a, to give you a Nobel to, to let you know that it was so amazing? Yeah. Like, doesn't everybody? And, ugh, I don't know. And I don't understand the the reasoning behind not giving it to people that that die yeah if someone dies just before they're you know nominated or whatever it's like does that matter i yeah. mean you know it almost should should be after they're after they know died. because it takes so, so, so long you know what wait are there any i wonder if there are it's like it's like scientific sainthood it's like you have to be dead <laughs> already uh, and then you get canonized Being, yeah and you know what that might be a better way to go because that would avoid giving nobels to people that in later years say dumb things mm. and then are super nobel you get to look at the full body of work and yeah. see if they later turn into a jerk i like this yeah and so i would like to nominate for the first science sainthood you know canonization ron drever of ligo there you go Thanks, Ron. Yeah, man. R.I.P. Yeah, Nobel totally did it wrong. It should only be for dead people. I I don't know who would do the Nobel lecture when they when they got their prize or any <laughs> if they're dead. <laughs> but but yeah, but then it, it removes the possibility of embarrassments because dead people don't yeah. do anything dumb. Yeah, and we revere them afterwards. Yeah, the, prob- anyway. the problem with people that are alive is that they say stuff. Yeah, yeah. they get old and weird. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but anyway, so... Um, so she won in 1983. 83. And then uh, she died nine years later. Okay. In, uh, she, she kept working at the, uh, the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory and, you know, mentoring students and um, just being in general an awesome person. She died at the age of 90. Hmm. Pretty uh, undramatic. Just died of, you know, 
being an old being old not bad for having blasted things with x-rays yeah i mean apparently she was taking some precautions because that's that's a pretty good run yeah i think they knew that they was like oh yeah let's not stand they learned from marie curie they're like (laughs) we should be wearing lead suits x-rays are bad yeah no no more (laughs) (sighs) but yeah so she was she's really cool and i love the stuff about dna i love just thinking about how how dna works and how we're still learning about it like we said i just yeah it's so cool well let's definitely bring her to brunch oh yeah let's invite greg mendel and yeah they can chat it up and we can ask her why eleanor didn't fit her as a child why why the name i wonder if i I wonder if she had any say in that i i have so many questions i have yeah i have questions too like did they just decide she's a barbara or did she decide she was a barbara I mean, how I, how I read was that her parents were like, this name is just too, kind of like too feminine for her, which is so funny because I don't think about Eleanor being like the girliest <laughs> name in the world or something, but they yeah. were like, this just doesn't work. It's, she's a Barbara. Well, because our reference is Eleanor Roosevelt, who was derided for her oh, looks that's... and everything, even though she was awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very nice name. They're both they're both perfectly nice names. Well, the the good the good news is if you want to name your kid after Barbara McClintock, you have two options: Barbara or Eleanor. Uh, <laughs> Either one will work. Yeah, I love the idea of a kid being like, "Oh, hi, I'm Eleanor. I'm named after Barbara McClintock." <laughs> um, That's a great story. Someone do that. <laughs> how do I tell you this? That's confusing. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So when we invite her to brunch, yeah. I bet she's going to have probably, I don't know, what would, what's something with corn in it for breakfast? Mm. I suppose like a... Some kind of tortilla. Bre- breakfast enchiladas. Ooh, yes. I love that. Tamales. Mm. Are there such things as breakfast tamales or is it just me who eats them for breakfast? <laughs> there has to be somewhere that okay. does this. It can't possibly just be us. So yeah. But so, yeah. So she'll have some corn. I mean, it's, it's so funny. Some people have this thing about eating the species that they study. It's uh-huh. like a rite of passage, oh, depending right. on what it is, obviously. <laughs> um, but yeah. hers was so easy. I bet she was just sitting there, like, reading about it, like, just, like, gnawing Munching. on a cup of corn, corn on the cob. It's like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Ooh, question. Uh-huh. When you eat a corn, a corn on the cob, uh-huh. do you eat it like a typewriter, like a cross? Or do you kind of twist it and I twist eat it, it in a spiral? <gasps> Me too. Do you realize that we're the only two people that do that? What? <laughs> I have had, okay, this is one of my favorite, yeah, like surveys to uh-huh. take. Yeah, as people, if you do it typewriter or spiral. Because I like the spiral because I could just like yeah. drag my Leverage. lower teeth up. And yeah, you, so yeah. you always, but yeah, some people just loved every bite being a new bite. So they go, hum, hum, hum. Like That's all going inefficient across. and crazy. Yeah, I just, I just like grind it against my lower teeth. <laughs> arr, arr, and then spin See, we and just, spin. we're just like corn. And we're like, but the, I can't tell you how many times I've been eating a corn, co- corn on the cob and I'm doing that. And people look at me like I'm nuts. You should stand up and yell at them. Be like, you're nuts. This is the far more efficient way to eat corn on the cob. So whatever, you guys. I did extensive studies. And this is the most efficient way. Just so you know. You all are crazy. Oh, yeah. Anyway. So I think that's it for this episode of Science Brunch. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about corn on the cob. And all sorts of crazy Very important stuff. Um, what do we, what do we have coming up in our next episode? 
Next episode, I'm talking about Salim Ali. Oh, I don't know who that is. That's cool. <laughs> and uh, pretty soon, I'm getting really excited for the Science March. The yes. March for Science, excuse me. Yes, the March for Science, April 22nd. Mm-hmm. We will Different be there. Different marches all over the country. We will not be at in D.C. Right. We'll be going to the one in Los Angeles, in downtown Los Angeles, but Correct. we are very excited. We are very excited, and we hope that if you are in the area that we will see you there because yeah. we have some goodies to hand out. Yeah, and we'll we'll be posting pictures for for all of our European listeners and people across the country who want to see what the hell is going on. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Um, but we'll be posting pictures because we know that the vast majority of our listeners are not in Los Angeles, of course. So shout out to all you not in Los Angeles. Hi! <laughs> Bonjour! <laughs> Guten Tag. We know there's some in Germany. Yes. Um, but yeah. Hopefully, if there's a science march near you, hopefully you'll go and just, you know, support sciencing, mm-hmm. which we know is important. Yeah, we should bring some brunch with us and just be <laughs> eating and marching, showing your science Breakfast brunch burritos pride. and brunch. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. So thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe and review and go to our website and sign up for our newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And I think that's it. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Thank you.